Well, good morning. Thanks again for joining us here at South Suburban Christian Church for our online feed. If you're on our online.church platform, a special good morning to you. Thank you for being with us. Or if you're watching on Facebook Live, glad you're with us as well. I also want to greet those of you who are watching or listening to us on some of our other platforms on YouTube uh, or on um, SoundCloud. Uh, thank you for uh, being with us this morning. I want to just take a few moments before we get into the message today to just speak a minute about how God is working in the midst of our congregation. You know, we've had lots of questions about whether or not, how, how are things going with the congregation financially? Well, across the United States, of course, churches of all kinds are struggling in this time. They're uh, not being able to fund their staff. Uh, as a matter of fact, many of my friends and colleagues have uh, either been furloughed or some have actually uh, been dismissed from their pulpits simply because the church doesn't have the finances in order to maintain uh, the level of ministries that they had had back in February. And many of you have asked how this congregation is doing. And so um, we, um, we're, we're okay. We're, we're holding our own. Um, we're not as bad as some, but we're really worse than we'd like to be. Um, just to give you some basic facts, we're about, we, we run about anywhere from three dollars to $5,000 under uh, each week uh, on our budgeted giving. So the giving that we expected to get back when we did our budget, we're, we're hitting anywhere from three dollars to $5,000 less. So in our budgeted giving, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000 in the red. However, part of the work that both our staff and our governing board have done is just to be able to rein in some of the expenses. And uh, by doing that, we're looking very closely uh, at uh, what we spend our resources on, uh, deploying those gifts and those finances in areas uh, that are truly doing the work of the kingdom, glorifying God, uh, maintaining our facility as best we can, uh, but being very cautious, very conservative uh, when it comes to uh, doing things that we think we can push off for six, eight, 12 months. Uh, we want to be good stewards of your resources, that which you entrust us with. But I, I'll have to tell you, the biggest expense of, of really any church, uh, but ours as well, is the cost of our staff and the cost of our facility. And uh, so we, we are bringing in enough to pay the bills. And uh, we're, we're not dipping into anything. We don't have a whole lot to dip into, uh, but we're, we're able to keep our heads above water. Uh, folks have said, well, is there something that is happening across the, the giving spectrum that is really significant? And, and there really isn't. I mean, we're looking at some of those things. Uh, there are a couple of blips on the radar screen, if you will. Uh, but by and large, we're losing revenue in one of two areas. Number one, folks who come uh, and would worship but are not regular givers. So what we call our cash uh, contributions, you know, when you have... Uh, 450, 480 folks uh, attending at our services on a weekend. Um, they might drop in $5, $20, those sorts of things. That's a significant piece of, of our giving throughout the year. It's actually uh, in the top 10 of all of the areas in which we receive our giving. And so in, because we're not meeting in person, and even if we were to meet in person, unless we would hit that 450 to 480 mark, we wouldn't make up that giving anyway. Uh, so, so that's one, one significant piece. So the, the second significant piece is really what we're calling a death by a thousand paper cuts. 
uh, this is hurting all of us. Some people have lost their jobs. Some people's uh, uh, income from stocks have uh, dropped. And so that is reflected in their giving as well. So we have lots and lots and lots and lots of folks who are giving uh, you know, $10 less or $20 less or $50 less. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you add that up over the course of hundreds of people, that becomes a significant part uh, of our giving. So when people say, how are things financially? Well, they're, they're not as good as we would hope, but they're not as bad as we feared. And much of the reason that we're able to do what we do is because many of you have been faithful in sending in your checks, giving online, and we want to thank you for that. Thank you for all that you're doing. I would ask if you have the ability to uh, give a little bit more, we would greatly appreciate it. The biggest asset that we have uh, right now is you. The work that you do in your communities, at your place of work, in your neighborhoods, and your support of the ministries of this congregation. Specifically this ministry, this online ministry. This has grown exponentially beyond what we could have even imagined. And we're grateful for uh, the work that God is doing through it. In summary, my trust is in God. I know yours is as well. And God moves us uh, to support uh, the ministry and our financial gifts and our prayers and our activity. And so I really don't have a lot of fear about that. I know that the Lord will continue to bless the work that is glorifying him and advancing the gospel. But let me say again, thank you. Thank you for those of you who are giving faithfully. Thank you to those of you who have been able to step up that giving just a little bit. And even if you're not, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing the word. Thank you for remembering us in your prayers. That's important, and we need that. God bless you. We're looking today in our series, The Stories of Jesus. We're near, almost near the end of our uh, series here. We have one more to go. Uh, Pastor Joe will be sharing that message next week, uh, which will close out this series, The Stories of Jesus. But today I want to look with you at Luke chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Uh, this is the great and, and wonderful and famous story uh, on the road to Emmaus. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, you're in for a real treat. And I think a lesson that is quite applicable in all of our lives, especially in this season of pandemic, in this season of uncertainty about where we're going and where we will wind up uh, in, in the months and, and potentially years to come. So if you found your, uh, in your Bible, Luke chapter 24, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text, read it, read it first. I'm going to read half of it, and then we'll talk about it a little bit, and then we'll complete the text a little bit later. So verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them, these are two disciples of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is the conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. I think we've all had those moments in our life when we have been completely caught off guard, stunned at how things had transpired. We've asked ourselves questions like, is this really what was going to happen? Does this fit my expectations? I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can handle what I have been given. Life is too complicated. It's too hard. It's too much of a struggle. Some of us may have even heard the testimonies of people who have gotten through difficult situations like our own. And we have said to ourselves, that can't possibly be true. Those stories of redemption, those stories of victory, those stories of strength can't be true because I don't sense them. We begin to judge the world based on our own experiences. We even judge the experiences of other people based on our perception of ourselves, who we are, how we would act, what we would say. Well, it's not a small thing to say that all of the disciples of Jesus were probably stunned at the events that had occurred in Jerusalem. These two disciples who are walking on the road toward Emmaus are probably not that different than many of us. They had placed their trust in Jesus, they had listened to his teachings, and yet as they listened to his words, as they got to know who the man was, their expectations, their understandings of what would be the final result were significantly different than what the final result actually was. One of the most troubling things about this text is how Luke begins to frame this. He says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's always troubled me, and I don't know if I have a good answer to it. I don't know if when I read these words that I assume that because I believe God is a sovereign God, he, through an act of his own will and his own sovereignty, prevented them from seeing who Jesus was. Or if it was because of who they were, of their own presuppositions, their own expectations, their own character, 
who they were as individuals that prevented them from seeing who Jesus was. Whichever perspective most fits in your understanding, I'm not sure that changes the whole framework of the text. Unlike in some of the past weeks where we are specifically looking for a insight or a revelation as to who Jesus is in this text, it's pretty well laid out. Even the disciples, as they answer Jesus' question about what had happened in Jerusalem, are clear at laying out what we all have heard as a part of the Christian church. When we listen to the messages on Easter, or when we have thought about what it is that makes Christianity real and authentic, and the truth. And yet, they still weren't able to see past that. And so perhaps this might be a text where we can look at the disciples to see if there's something that we might learn about ourselves. That we might learn about how we live our Christian life. That we might think about when it comes to becoming a follower of Jesus. As Jesus and these two disciples are walking along, uh, he notices that they're talking and he asks them, what is it that you're talking about? And one of the disciples is named by Luke. A disciple named Cleopas, certainly not one of the twelve, but as we know uh, that Jesus had other disciples beyond the twelve. The twelve just were his inner circle of disciples who would ultimately become the apostles, save for that of Judas Iscariot, of course, who was the betrayer. But lots of other folks, both men and women, young and old, were followers of Jesus. Jesus constantly invited people to follow him. And apparently Cleopas and this other disciples were two of those other followers. Where are they headed? To Emmaus. Why? We don't really know. But we do know that as they are journeying together, they're asking some pretty tough questions, having a pretty intense conversation with one another. And Jesus wants them to expound upon it. Now, they spend some time in this explanation talking about some of the things that had historically and factually occurred that Jesus was somebody who was coming to redeem them, although their understanding of that redemption was probably quite different. They perhaps viewed Jesus coming as somebody who would redeem Israel by establishing it as a nation again, uh, allowing Israel to come out from under Roman occupation and Roman control. You might say that their expectations of Jesus was well, rather temporal, rather humanly, ra rather fleshly, perhaps even governmentally. Their understanding of redemption, their understanding of freedom, was a political freedom, a fleshly freedom, a freedom of this temporal world, of how they lived each day. And with some sense of regret, they also share with Jesus how their rulers, our chief priests, they say, delivered Jesus over to be condemned to death and crucified. But their story doesn't end there. Their story continues as they share with Jesus that some of the women of their company, that is, some of the women disciples, go and find the empty tomb and are recipients of a vision that Jesus was no longer there. And how some of the other disciples went and confirmed indeed that the tomb was empty. And there, their story ends. 
They don't have anything more to say about that. Now we'll come to Jesus' response in just a moment. You know, I think sometimes when we come to life, when our expectations are not met, when we think all is lost, when we wonder why we are in these situations, and we ask ourselves these questions, would God allow something to come upon me that I can't handle, which incidentally is not in the Scriptures, we have to ask ourselves, is it God who has the problem? Or is it we who must examine our own hearts and our own minds? I think that's a decision that we choose to make. Lots of people just simply say, my expectations were met, therefore this isn't true, and they go on their way. It's not unusual. Jesus meant scores and scores and scores of people who did that. Let me first bury my father. Let me first attend to the uh, business of my household. Let me do this first, let me do that first, and then I'll come and follow you. Jesus says, if that's your, if that's your perspective, that, then you're not worthy of the kingdom. You're not worthy to be one of my disciples. So what are some of the things that we could learn from these disciples? Well, first of all, I think that these disciples saw life with their physical eyes, neglecting the spiritual dimension of our lives. Now, this is a common common perspective in the new testament something that too often today as we think about life purely from a naturalistic perspective or even a medical perspective we might say scientific perspective that we dismiss that which we cannot see measure touch feel etc you know when the apostle paul writes about issues of immorality he talks about those not as the physical act necessarily, but that the physical act impacts the spiritual person. That too often when we live lives of immorality, it is that we are connecting with multiple people spiritually, he says in 1 Corinthians. When we think about what we expect from Jesus, what we expect from following the Christian life, most of our answers are probably fleshly as well. That we will have good health. That we will have security in our finances. That we will have a sense of joy and peace each day. We even have a name for that in the church today. We call it the gospel of health and wealth. Or the prosperity gospel. And we all know that within our hearts that's not true. If that were true, then we'd have to go back and apologize to every single one of the disciples who met a horrific death in martyrdom. Sometimes following Jesus, sometimes recognizing God and God's sovereignty in our life is not going to bring all rainbows and sunshine. Some days there's storms. Some days there's pain. Some days there's angst and doubt and worry. It's a part of the human condition. These disciples were looking at Jesus and his ministry with their physical eyes. That the redemption of Israel was going to be something political, dismissing the spiritual aspects. It's a real common issue in our contemporary society that we view spiritual things as something that's subservient to physical things. That there is the physical reality, and underneath it 
is the spiritual realm. But that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is, is that the physical realm is a manifestation of the spiritual realm. We get that itself in the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His Spirit hovered over the waters. From the Spirit comes the physical, which means the Spirit is the fullness of our experiences, of our dimension, that through the creative process, our bodies now are connected with, which is why Paul talks about how we use our bodies, how we, how we deploy our bodies for the glory of God. Jesus uses the body as an example of the church. But we must never forget or neglect one with the other. And if we think about it, throughout history and throughout our own lives, probably the biggest mistakes is when we have either focused more on the physical and not the spiritual, or even those who focus on the spiritual without the physical. They go together. There's nothing wrong with looking at the world with a critical eye as long as you're also looking at the world with your spiritual eye. These two disciples were trying to make sense with it with their fleshly minds, but they were neglecting the spiritual reality of existence. I think the second thing uh, that uh, served as a trap for these disciples was is that their own agenda determined their expectations. Now, many disciples made the mistake thinking that the Messiah would merely recapture the glory days of king david in other words they hoped jesus would bring israel uh, back to its position of power and prosperity that she once enjoyed maybe even magnified at this point and multiplied given their exclusive worship of god this would not have been an inappropriate wish it's not something that would have been strange outside of how most jews in the ancient world thought and had thought for decades, if not centuries, having endured persecution and conquering by nation after nation after nation. But compared to the reality that lay before them, Roman oppression, a dead Messiah, their hopes of glory, their hopes of redemption, in this moment, in this text, seem to be utterly destroyed. Now, I don't have a five-step process to make sure that your expectations always stick to God's agenda, not your agenda. But I think it's a good question to ask each time we find ourselves in a moment of uncertainty, when we find ourselves in a time of grief, is my agenda determining my expectations? Is my agenda determining the expectations of the church, of Christianity, of God. It's hard to surrender our agenda, isn't it? Especially in this culture in which we live where commercialism is, is so important and customer service is a word we hear all the time. You know, you should be able to have life your way. And yet the Christian worldview is diametrically different than that. Our call is to adopt God's agenda for our life. One of the prayers that I say all the time is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm no different than any of you. I struggle with the same worries, the same doubts, 
one of the disciplines, and it is a discipline, it's something you have to work at, it's an exercise that you have to intentionally put into your life each day, is am I going to live today based on my agenda, or am I going to live today based on God's agenda, regardless of what that brings. To be able to forget myself and offer myself and offer my family, offer my life for the expectation that God has. I think the third thing that these disciples neglected was as they failed to acknowledge the resurrection. Now I'm going to make some folks a little uncomfortable here. You know, back in the time when um, Christianity was being born and developed as a faith after Jesus' resurrection, but in the midst of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was greatly influenced by what was called Platonic thought, which was this uh, idea that was developed by Plato. You've probably heard the name Plato. Three great philosophers of the ancient world, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. If you want to remember them in order, just think of spa. Everybody likes to go to the spa, don't they, for relaxation? S, Socrates, P, Plato, A, Aristotle. That's how you can remember them in chronological order. But Plato was probably the most influential, at least in the time of the Roman Empire during, uh, just immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is something most folks don't realize. Plato actually believed in the resurrection, but he believed that the resurrection was spiritual only, not physical. And so one of the things that got the Christians in trouble when they began to bump up against Roman thought and Roman philosophy was is that we declared a different kind of resurrection. We declared a physical resurrection. Remember earlier when I said that from the Christian worldview, the spiritual and the physical have been brought together. And the same is true in Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the Romans had no problem thinking that Jesus' spirit might have been raised again and lived on. But that's not what we Christians said. We said that his body was raised from the dead. And not only was Jesus' body raised from the dead and glorified, but we too would have our bodies raised from the dead. You see, I, I think these, the, the, these disciples that were on their way to Emmaus were thinking of that resurrection in merely spiritual terms only. If these two followers believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, two things would have been true. First, they would have been walking toward Jerusalem to see the risen Christ, not toward Emmaus. And second, they would have seen the trials, the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus as merely the fulfillment of the promise and not as an end to their hopes. Now, how did Jesus deal with this? Let me finish reading the text to you today. If you have your Bible, turn back to Luke chapter 24 beginning in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread.
You know, meals were an important part of the ancient Near East, but more specifically, there is a great tradition that we carry on today from the time of Jesus, and that's the Lord's table. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But it's not by accident that Jesus, that, that Luke lifts up the awareness of who Jesus is at the table when the bread was blessed and broke. Well, what am I supposed to do when I leave this table? What are some of the ways that I can avoid the same trap these two disciples fell in when they were making their way to, way to Emmaus? Well, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to surrender your expectations. Try this for an example. I want you to personalize a prayer, and then I want you to offer it to God. And your prayer may go something like this. Heavenly Father, merciful God, I greatly desire, and then you fill in the blank, whatever it is. I pray that whatever you put in that blank is honorable and good. So let's go on with our prayer. While this expectation, O oh God, is mostly honorable and good, it is nonetheless mine and may not be yours. I am frustrated and disillusioned because all my efforts to accomplish what I believe to be right fail to accomplish anything. Therefore, I must accept that the outcome I desire is not what you desire, Lord. I release my expectation. I release my expectation. And I humbly ask you to accomplish your will in whatever manner you see fit and whatever time you consider appropriate in my life. Amen. That's a prayer that will change your life. The second thing that I think might help is to seek God's perspective. Seek God's view of the whole world of human experiences and human relationships. Seek God's perspective in how you deal with your neighbors, who he sent his son to die for. Seek to accept in your hearts and in your mind the opportunity that God gives you from his vantage point. Read the scriptures recognizing it is the world God is redeeming along with you and with me. Pray that God will give you the wisdom to understand. But if he doesn't, pray for the strength to receive it and to accept it. And to constantly seek to embody Christ in all that you do and with all you meet. And the third thing, and one of the most difficult, trust God's timing. I oftentimes hear people say, I asked for something and God answered my prayer and said no. Sometimes that's true. But other times it may be simply not yet. My son's 11 years old. He wants to drive so badly he can't stand it. He'll drive someday if the Lord wills it. He may even be able to drive my truck. I haven't figured that one out yet. But there is 
something that gives him hope for every day. Someday you'll get to drive the truck, son. Just not today. If that's how we deal with our earthly children, does it seem logical that that's how our Heavenly Father might deal with us? As we grow in faith, as we grow in maturity, I look back on my own life and I see opportunities that I so much very wanted that I didn't receive in the time that I thought they would, but years later they would come to pass. And it was in those moments, as I stepped into those opportunities, that I realized, man, if I had been given this five years ago, I would not have been able to handle this. I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for that level of responsibility. I wasn't ready for that level of work in that particular job. But it all came in God's timing. You see, we're not only growing in physical and emotional maturity, we're growing in spiritual maturity as well. And spiritual maturity rarely occurs instantaneously. Growth usually requires a journey. And journeys, well, they take time. Submit to God's will. Trust in His timing. And above all, just simply enjoy the journey. You know, in conclusion, circumstances, especially those that involve loss and the breaking apart of expectations, are a common part of the human existence. For some of us, they'll paralyze us. They'll cause us to give up. For these two disciples, they listened. Their eyes were open, and they testified to the disciples themselves of the truth of the resurrection. These two disciples probably felt utterly alone and were mourning beyond what words could describe. But during their suffering, Jesus came to walk with them. And even though they didn't recognize him, he was still there, and he led them to the fullness of his truth. If you're in that moment now, even if you can't recognize that Jesus is with you, trust that he's there. For that's what his word declares. Have you made Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Would you say yes to that question today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And do you accept him as Lord and Savior? If you've made that decision this morning, will you let us know if you're on our online.church platform or if you're watching or listening to us on our other platforms, would you drop us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we can celebrate with you knowing that in God's timing, victory is always known. Would you pray with me? Merciful God, in the midst of uncertainties of life, in the midst of broken expectations, you always lead us to right where we need to be when we need to be there. We pray, merciful God, that we might rest in your sovereign, divine plan for goodness for all of your creation, including our own. In Jesus' name, amen.